A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 56. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 19. Back Through Nubia, Part 2. Dhaka comes next in order, then Gurf Hussein, Dendur, and Kalabsha. Arriving at Dhaka soon after sunrise, we find the whole population, screaming, pushing, chattering, laden with eggs, pigeons, and gourds for sale, drawn up to receive us. There is a large sand island in the way, so we moor about a mile above the temple. We first saw the twin pylons of Dhaka some weeks ago from the deck of the Philae, and we likened them to the majestic towers of Edfu. Approaching them now by land, we are surprised to find them so small. It is a brilliant, hot morning, and our way lies by the river, between the lentil slope and the castorberry patches. There are flocks of pigeons flying low overhead, barking dogs and crowing cocks in the village close by, and all over the path hundreds of beetles, real live scarabs, black as coal and busy as ants, rolling their clay pellets up from the water's edge to the desert. If we were to examine a score or so of these pellets, we should here and there find one that contained no eggs, for it is a curious fact that the scarab beetle makes and rolls her pellets whether she has an egg to deposit or not. The female beetle, though assisted by the male, is said to do the heavier share of the pellet rolling, and if evening comes on before her pellet is safely stowed away, she will sleep holding it with her feet all night, and resume her labor in the morning. The temple here, begun by an Ethiopian king named Archimon Ergememnes, about whom Diodorus has a long story to tell, and carried on by the Ptolemies and Caesars, stands in a desolate open space to the north of the village, and is approached by an avenue, the walls of which are constructed with blocks from some other earlier building. The whole of this avenue, and all the waste ground for three or four hundred yards around the temple, is not merely strewn, but piled with fragments of pottery, pebbles, and large smooth stones of phophorix, alabaster, basalt, and a kind of marble, like verde antico. These stones are puzzling. They look as if they might be fragments of statues that had been rolled and polished by ages of friction in the bed of a torrent. Among the potsherds we find some inscribed fragments, like those of Elephantine. Of the temple I will only say that, as masonry, it is better put together than any work of the eighteenth or nineteenth dynasties with which I am acquainted. The sculptures, however, are atrocious. Such misshapen hieroglyphs, such dumpy, smirking goddesses, such clownish kings and such preposterous head-dressings, we have never seen till now. The whole thing, in short, as regards sculpturesque style, is the Ptolemaic out-Ptolemaid. Rowing round presently to Cabin, the river running wide with the sand island in between, we land under the walls of a huge crude brick structure, black with age, which at first sight looks quite shapeless, but which proves to be an ancient Egyptian fortress, buttressed, towered, loopholed, finished at the angles with invariable moulded torus, and surrounded by a deep dry moat, which is probably yet filled each summer by the inundation. Now of all rare things in the valley of the Nile, a purely secular ruin is the rarest, and this, with the exception of some foundations of dwellings here and there, is the first we have seen. 
It is probably very, very old, as old as the days of Tutmus Third, whose name is found on some scattered blocks about a quarter of a mile away, and who built two similar fortresses at Semna, thirty-five miles above Wadi Halfa. It may be a thousand years older still, and date from the time at Amenemhat Third, whose name is also found on a stella near Coban. For here was once an ancient city, when Pelsix, now Dhaka, was but a new suburb on the opposite bank. The name of this ancient city is lost, but it is by some supposed to be identical with the Metacompso of Ptolemy. As the suburb grew, the mother town declined, and in time the suburb became the city, and the city became the suburb. The scattered blocks aforesaid, together with the remains of a small temple, yet marked the position of the elder city. The walls of this most curious and interesting fortress have probably lost much of their original height. They are in some parts thirty feet thick, and nowhere less than twenty. They are built at a buttress slope outside, with additional shallow buttresses at regular distances. These last, as they can scarcely add to the enormous strength of the original wall, were probably designed for effect. There are two entrances to the fortress, one in the center of the north wall and one in the south. We enter the enclosure by the last named, and find ourselves in the midst of an immense parallelogram measuring about four hundred and fifty feet from east to west, and perhaps three hundred feet from north to south. All within these bounds is a wilderness of ruin. The space looks large enough for a city, and contains what might be the debris of a dozen cities. We climb huge mounds of rubbish, skirt cataracts of broken pottery, and stand on the brink of excavated pits, honeycombed forty feet below with brick foundations. Over these mounds and at the bottom of these pits swarm men, women, and children, filling and carrying away basket-loads of rubble. The dust rises in clouds. The noise, the heat, the confusion are indescribable. One pauses, bewildered, seeking in vain to discover in this mighty maze any indication of a plan. It is only by an effort that one gradually realizes how the place is but a vast shell, and how all these mounds and pits mark the site of what was once a huge edifice rising tower above tower to a central keep, such as we see represented on the battle-subjects of Abu Simbel and Thebes. That towered edifice and central keep, quarried, broken up, carried away piecemeal, reduced to powder, and spread over the land as manure, has now disappeared almost to its foundations. Only the well in the middle of the enclosure, and the great wall of circuit, remain. That wall is doomed, and will by and by share the fate of the rest. The well, which must have been very deep, is choked with rubbish to the brim. Meanwhile, in order to realize what the place in its present condition is like, one need but imagine how the Tower of London would look if the whole of the inner buildings, White Tower, Chapel, Armory, Governor's Quarters, and all, were leveled in shapeless ruin, and only the outer walls and moat were left. Built up against the inner side of the wall of circuit are the remains of a series of massive towers, the tops of which, as they are strangely enough shorter than the external structure, can never have communicated with the battlements, unless by ladders. The finest of these towers, together with a magnificent fragment of wall, faces the eastern desert. 
Going out by the north entrance we find the sides of the gateway, and even the steps leading down into the moat, in perfect preservation, while at the base of the great wall, on the outer side facing the river, there yet remains a channel or conduit about two feet square, built and roofed with stone, which in Murray is described as a water-gate. The sun is high, the heat is overwhelming, the felucca waits, and we turn reluctantly away, knowing that between here and Cairo we shall see no more curious relic of the far-off past than this dismantled stronghold. It is a mere mountain of unburnt brick, altogether unlovely, admirable only for the gigantic strength of its proportions, pathetic only in the abjectness of its ruin." Yet it brings the lost ages home to one's imagination, in a way that no temple ever could bring them. It dispels for a moment the historic glamour of the sculptures, and compels us to remember those nameless and forgotten millions, of whom their rulers fashioned soldiers in time of war, and builders in time of peace. Our adventures, by the way, are few and far between, and now we rarely meet a Dahabiyah. Birds are more plentiful than when we were in this part of the river a few weeks ago. We see immense flights of black and white cranes congregated at night on the sandbanks, and any number of quail may be had for the shooting. It is a matter for rejoicing when the idle man goes out with his gun and brings home a full bag, for our last sheep was killed before we started for Wadi Halfa, and our last poultry ceased cackling at Abu Simbel. One morning early we see a bride taken across the river in a big boat full of women and girls, who are clapping their hands and shrilling the tremendous zagarit. The bride, a chocolate beauty with magnificent eyes, wears a gold brow pendant and nose-ring, and has her hair newly plaited in hundreds of tails, finished off at the ends with mud pellets daubed with yellow ochre. She stands surrounded by her companions, proud of her finery, and pleased to be stared at by the Inglesa. About this time, also, we see one night a wild sort of festival going on for some miles along both sides of the river. Watch-fires break out towards twilight, first on this bank, then on that, becoming brighter and more numerous as the darkness deepens. By and by, when we are going to bed, we hear sounds of drumming on the eastern bank, and see from afar a torchlight procession and dance. The effect of this dance of torches, for it is only the torches that are visible, is quite diabolic. The lights flit and leap as if they were alive, circling, clustering, dispersing, bobbing, pousetting, pursuing each other at a gallop, and whirling every now and then through the air like rockets. Late as it is, we would fain put ashore and see this orgy more nearly, but Rais Hassan shakes his head. The natives hereabout are said to be quarrelsome and if, as it is probable, they are celebrating the festival of some local saint, we might be treated as intruders. Coming at early morning to Gurf Hussein, we make our way up to the temple, which is excavated in the face of a limestone cliff, a couple of hundred feet, perhaps, above the river. A steep path, glaring hot in the sun, leads to a terrace in the rock, the temple being approached through the ruins of a built-out portico and an avenue of battered colossi. It is a gloomy place within, an inferior addition, so to say, of the great temple of Abu Simbel, and of the same date. It consists of a first hall supported by Osiride pillars, a second and smaller hall with square columns, a smoke-blackened sanctuary, and two side-chambers. 
the osiride colossi which stand twenty feet high without the entablature over their heads or the pedestal under their feet are thick-set bow-legged and misshapen their faces would seem to have been painted black originally while those of the avenue outside have distinctly ethiopian features one seems to detect here as at dur and wadi sabua the work of provincial sculptors just as at abu simbel one recognizes the master style of the artist of the theban ramesseum the great side chambers at gurf hussein are infested with bats these bats are the great side of the place and have their appointed showman we find him waiting for us with an end of tarred rope which he flings blazing into the pitch-dark doorway for a moment we see the whole ceiling hung as it were with a close fringe of white filmy-looking pendants but it is only for a moment the next instant the creatures are all in motion dashing out madly in our faces like driven snowflakes we picked up a dead one afterwards when the rush was over and examined it by the outer daylight a lovely little creature white and downy with fine transparent wings and little pink feet and the prettiest mousy mouth imaginable bordered with dwarf palms acacias and henna bushes the cliffs between gurf hussein and dendur stand out in detached masses so like ruins that sometimes we can hardly believe they are rocks at dendur when the sun is setting and a delicious gloom is stealing up the valley we visit a tiny temple on the western bank it stands out above the river surrounded by a wall of enclosure and consists of a single pylon a portico two little chambers and a sanctuary the whole thing is like an exquisite toy so covered with sculptures so smooth so new-looking so admirably built seeing them half by sunset half by dusk it matters not that these delicately wrought bas-reliefs are of the decadence school the rosy half-light of an egyptian afterglow covers a multitude of sins and steeps the whole in an atmosphere of romance wondering what has happened to the climate we wake shivering next morning an hour or so before break of day and for the first time in several weeks taste the old early chill upon the air when the sun rises we find ourselves at kalebsha having passed the limit of the tropic during the night henceforth no matter how great the heat may be by day this chill invariably comes with the dark hour before dawn the usual yelling crowd with the usual beads baskets eggs and pigeons for sale greets us on the shore at kalebsha one of the men has a fine old two-handed sword in a shabby blue velvet sheath for which he asks five napoleons it looks as if it might have belonged to a crusader some of the women bring buffalo cream in filthy-looking black skins slung round their waists like girdles the cream is excellent but the skins temper one's enjoyment of the unaccustomed dainty there is a magnificent temple here and close by excavated in the cliff a rock-cut spios the local name of which is bait el -Weli. the sculptures of this famous spios have been more frequently described and engraved than almost any sculptures in egypt the procession of ethiopian tribute dealers the assault of the amorite city the triumph of rameses are familiar not only to every reader of wilkinson but to every visitor passing through the egyptian rooms of the british museum notwithstanding the casts that have been taken from them and the ill-treatment to which they have been subjected by natives and visitors they are still beautiful 
the colour of those in the roofless courtyard, though so perfect when Bonomi executed his admirable facsimiles, has now almost entirely peeled off. But in the portico and inner chambers it is yet brilliant. An emerald green Osiris, a crimson Anubis, and an Isis of the brightest chrome yellow are astonishingly pure and forcible in quality. As for the flesh-tones of the Anubis, this was, I believe, the only instance I observed of a true crimson in Egyptian pigments. Between the Spios of Beit el-Weli and the neighboring temple of Kalebsha, there lies about half a mile of hilly pathway and a gulf of fourteen hundred years. Ramesses ushers us into the presence of Augustus, and we pass, as it were, from an oratory in the great house of Pharaoh to the presence chamber of the Caesars. But if the decorative work in the presence chamber of the Caesars was anything like the decorative work in the temple of Kalebsha, then the taste thereof was of the vilest. Such a masquerade of deities, such striped and spotted and cross-barred robes, such outrageous head-dresses, such crude and violent colouring, we have never seen the like of. As for the goddesses, they are gaudier than the dancing damsels of Luxor, while the kings balance on their heads diadems compounded of horns, moons, birds, balls, beetles, lotus blossoms, asps, vases, and feathers. The temple, however, is conceived on a grand scale. It is the Karnak of Nubia. But it is a Karnak that has evidently been visited by a shock of earthquake far more severe than that which shook the mighty pillars of the hypostyle hull and flung down the obelisk of Hatasu. From the river it looks like a huge fortress, but seen from the threshold of the main gateway, it is a wilderness of ruin. Fallen blocks, pillars, capitals, entablatures lie so extravagantly piled that there is not one spot in all those halls and courtyards upon which it is possible to set one's foot on the level of the original pavement. Here again the earthquake seems to have come before the work was completed. There are figures outlined on the walls, but never sculpted. Others have been begun, but never finished. You can see where the chisel stopped. You can even detect which was the last mark it made on the surface. One traces here, in fact, the four processes of wall decoration. In some places the space is squared off and ruled by the mechanic. In others the subject is ready drawn within those spaces by the artist. Here the sculptor has carried it a stage further. Yonder the painter has begun to color it. More interesting, however, than aught else at Kalebsha is the Greek inscription of Silco of Ethiopia. This inscription, made famous by the commentaries of Niebuhr and Latrone, was discovered by M. Gas in A.D. 1818. It consists of twenty-one lines very neatly written in red ink, and it dates from the sixth century of the Christian era. It commences thus. I, Silco, puissant king of the Nubians and all the Ethiopians, I came twice as far as Talmus and Taphus. I fought against the blames, and God granted me the victory. I vanquished them a second time, and the first time I established myself completely with my troops. I vanquished them, and they supplicated me. I made peace with them, and they swore to me by their idols. I trusted them, because they are a people of good faith. Then I returned to my dominions in the upper country, for I am a king. 
Not only am I no follower in the train of other kings, but I go before them. As for those who seek strife against me, I give them no peace in their homes till they entreat my pardon. For I am a lion on the plains, and a goat upon the mountains, etc., etc., etc. The historical value of this inscription is very great. It shows that in the sixth century, while the native inhabitants of this part of the valley of the Nile yet adhered to the ancient Egyptian faith, the Ethiopians of the south were professedly Christian. The descendants of the Blamis are a fine race, tall, strong, and of a rich chocolate complexion. Strolling through the village at sunset, we see the entire population, old men sitting at their doors, young men lounging and smoking, children at play. The women, with glittering white teeth and liquid eyes, and a profusion of gold and silver ornaments on neck and brow, come out with their little brown babies astride on hip or shoulder, to stare as we go by. One sick old woman, lying outside her hut on a palm-wood couch, raises herself for a moment on her elbow, then sinks back with a weary sigh, and turns her face to the wall. The mud-dwellings here are built in and out of a maze of massive stone foundations, the remains of a building once magnificent. Some of these walls are built in concave courses, each course of stones, that is to say, being depressed in the centre and raised at the angles, which mode of construction was adopted in order to offer less resistance when shaken by earthquakes. We observe more foundations built thus at Taffa, where we arrive next morning. As the masons' work at Taffa is of late Roman date, it follows that earthquakes were yet frequent in Nubia at a period long subsequent to the great shock of B.C. 27, mentioned by Eusebius. Travellers are too ready to ascribe everything in the way of ruin to the fury of Cambyses and the pious rage of the early Christians. Nothing, however, is easier than to distinguish between the damage done to the monuments by the hand of man and the damage caused by subterraneous upheaval. Mutilation is the rule in one case, displacement in the other. At Dendera, for example, the injury done is wholly willful. At Abu Simbel it is wholly accidental. At Karnak it is both willful and accidental. As for Kalebsha, it is clear that no such tremendous havoc could have been effected by human means without the aid of powerful rams, fire, or gunpowder, any of which must have left unmistakable traces. At Taffa there are two little temples, one in picturesque ruin, one quite perfect, and now used as a stable. There are also a number of stone foundations, separate, quadrangular, subdivided into numerous small chambers, and enclosed in boundary walls, some of which are built on the concave courses just named. These substructures, of which the painter counted eighteen, have long been the puzzle of travellers. End of section 56